Uh, oh, just to let you know too, we'll get you this. We're planning on running this January 10th, and I'm sorry that I had to reschedule. I actually did wrong. Yeah, I didn't have to because I was I was going to a Tony Robbins event. I forgot, and then I wound up canceling it at the last minute. So. Oh, okay. Well, Tony's a longtime friend, and he gave a nice quote for the book too. So I completely understand. Okay. All right. Well, sounds good. All right. So we'll start. <clears throat> Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health and today we are privileged to be joined by Dr. Dean Ornish who is a pioneer in using foods to get yourself better and healthy and not only using them but establishing the foundational regular uh, study so that the federal regulatory agencies can use this information to get people better and he's written a new book called undo it which is published on january 6th so welcome and thank you for joining us today dr ornish thank you so much may i call you joe or joseph whatever works for you that's fine my, joe, you can call me by my first name my first name is doctor no just kidding call me dean <laughs> <laughs> all right dean all right we'll go with the, we'll drop the formalities then so um i i really enjoyed your book and i really want to congratulate you for, before we start discussing the book about what you've done really for establishing a president for doing the hard work the due diligence establishing the studies and uh, really putting the science together together to make to validate that this form of treatment works you've done such a massive amount of work in this area and specifically you focus on cardiovascular disease because or cardiologist, well, that makes perfect sense. Well, actually, just to correct that, I'm, a lot of people think that because the initial work that we did was to show that we could reverse heart disease for the first time, but I'm actually trained in internal medicine. I th you're not a cardiologist? No, I just play one oh. on TV. Okay, <laughs> sorry, sorry about that. I always got I was confused. All right, well, um, why don't we go into, to me, one of the most compelling components of the book is the story that you share and how you put in a decade and a half of uh, reviewing the, uh, compiling information for Medicaid and Medicare, as a Medicaid and Medicare, one of those agencies to yes. establish your program for, uh, re for reimbursement, which really, as we all know, if, if, a, if a program isn't reimbursed, then the likelihood it's going to be used consistently is pretty small. So why don't you share that story with us? Well, thank you. I, again, I appreciate so much the chance to be on your show. You have so many people who look to you for advice and what you've done uh, in educating people is really quite amazing. So thank you for having me. Um, you know, 40 years ago, I began doing research showing that these simple lifestyle changes that we've been talking about, you know, to reduce it down to its essence, to eat well, move more, stress less, and love more, can not only prevent but actually reverse the progression of the most common chronic diseases. We started with heart disease, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. We then did a randomized trial showing these same lifestyle changes could slow, stop, or reverse the progression of men with early stage prostate cancer, probably by extension, women with, uh, many women with breast cancer. We found that these same lifestyle changes actually change your genes, turning on the good genes and turning off the bad genes, particularly the genes that cause uh, heart disease, diabetes, prostate cancer, breast cancer, and colon cancer. We did a study with Elizabeth Blackburn, who got the Nobel Prize for her pioneering work with telomeres, and we found that we could actually increase the enzyme telomerase in just three months that repairs and lengthens telomeres. And over a five-year period, we found that we could actually lengthen telomeres. And uh, when the Lancet sent out this press release announcing this uh, study, they called it reversing aging at a cellular level. And we just began the first randomized trial to see if we could reverse the progression of 
men and women who have early stage Alzheimer's disease. So the more diseases we study and the more mechanisms we look at, the more reasons we have to explain why these changes are so powerful and how quickly people can often get better in ways we can measure. So we began, uh, we've done all this work through our nonprofit Preventive Medicine Research Institute in collaboration with some of the leading uh, scientists and, and uh, institutions around the country. And we've consistently shown that we can get bigger changes in lifestyle, better clinical outcomes, bigger cost savings, and better adherence. And so we began through our nonprofit institute in the early 90s training hospitals and clinics and physician groups around the country. And again, we got these amazing outcomes, but a number of the sites actually closed down. And when I talked to them, I said, why? They said, well, you know, this is the best program of its type we've ever had, and we're closing it down because it's not reimbursable. And so the painful lesson is that if, as you say, if it's not reimbursable, it's not sustainable, or as Crazy Eddie would say, money talks, nobody walks. Mm -hmm. And so um, we began going insurance company by insurance company. And, you know, a few like Mutual of Omaha and Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield and others did cover it. But people generally don't go into the insurance world because they're visionary or entrepreneurial. And so I thought, well, if we could just get Medicare to pay for it, then that would really, you know, change the whole paradigm because we doctors do what we get paid to do and we get trained to do what we get paid to do. So if you change reimbursement, you change not only medical practice, but even medical education. So when I was working with uh, former President Clinton at the time, uh, Hillary Clinton had asked me to work with them when they, shortly after he became president with the chefs that cooked for them in the White House and Camp David and Air Force One, and then later became one of his consulting physicians. And also through another series of coincidences, um, I began consulting with uh, Newt Gingrich and part of his family. Uh, and so we had the Speaker of the House and the President of the United States, and I thought, okay, well, uh, maybe we can get Medicare to pay for this. And <laughs> 16 years later, um, we finally got Medicare coverage. And, you know, it was really uh, the hardest thing that I've ever done. I, I remember one point halfway through the, this whole process, they said, well, we'll do a demonstration project, but you have to get a letter from the head of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute of the National Institute of Health that your program is safe for older Americans. And I said, safe compared to like having your chest cut open, you know? He said, no, it's just safe for older people to walk, meditate, eat vegetables, quit smoking, and love more. I said, you must be kidding. And I said, no, we're not. And so I actually did a whole literature review and said, guess what? These are not high-risk uh, behaviors. And uh, ironically, and we could talk more about this, the, the randomized trials have since shown that in stable patients, stents and angioplasties really don't work that well anyway. But that's another story. Anyway, so um, after 16 years, we finally uh, did get Medicare approval, which um, they created a new benefit category to cover our program. And now that Medicare is paying for it, most of the major insurance companies are, are covering it as well. And so we have been training hospitals and clinics and physician groups around the country, and it is working. And a lot of the book that, that we are coming out with is really based on the experiences that we've learned by doing this, how, what really enables people to make sustainable changes and what kind of outcomes we've been able to show. Yeah, and what I love about the program and your approach is that it is virtually, it is essentially impossible to address the foundational causes of disease in 10 minutes. It just isn't going to happen. And your program allows for 72 hours of training. Yes. And, and perhaps you can expand on that because to me, that's the core. And I've interviewed Chris Kresser in the past, who I suspect you know who he is. And he's got this vision of getting these health coaches all together because the physician by themselves can't do it. They're not going to do it in 10 minutes. It's just never going to happen. You need these allied professionals to educate them. Well, that's true. And it's not just the time, but also we don't really get trained in medicine. Uh, I wrote a review article with some colleagues of mine, Andrew Freeman and others, that show that the average doctor gets like four hours of nutrition training a, a year. 
and the average cardiologist gets zero, you know? So the time is part of it, but the training is the other, which is again, part of why I spent 16 years to do this. And you know, it's not like, you know, it's going to be 16 years and you're 15, you're going like, oh my God, this is ever going to happen, you know? But finally uh, it did. And the reason is, is that, you know, in 10 minutes, you know, most doctors wouldn't recommend medicine as a career for their kids. You know, it's not fun to, if you only have eight to 10 minutes to see a patient, you basically go through the electronic medical record, the problem list, you listen to the heart and lungs, you write a prescription, they're out the door. It's not fun for, for doctors or patients. And I think it's one reason why more money has been spent for the last 25 years on so-called alternative medicine than traditional medicine. Uh, because, you know, whatever the modality, people who are doing alternative approaches generally spend time with you. They listen to you. They touch you. They ask what's going on in your family and your friends and your marriage and your kids and your school and your work and all the things that are in your diet and your lifestyle that makes such an important difference. So our approach is a team approach where the doctor is the quarterback, but he or she isn't really spending most of their time with the patient. It's the meditation teacher, the nurse, the exercise physiologist, the dietitian, and the psychologist. And so rather than coming for a 10-minute visit, Medicare and most insurance companies are now paying for 72 hours of training, and we divide that into 18 four-hour sessions. So people get an hour of supervised exercise, an hour of meditation and stress management, yoga-based approaches. Who would have thought Medicare would be paying for that? An hour of a support group, which is part of why we're getting unprecedented levels of adherence. You know, 85 to 90% of the people finish the program after nine weeks, and, and 85% of them are following a, a year later and a year of a uh, group meal with a lecture. And, uh, and after they finish, they come twice a week for four hours. If they work, they come after work or during the day if they don't. And then they continue to meet using the same kind of Zoom technology that you and I are using now uh, to have their support groups. They used to just come on their own and meet, and we found that it's actually easier to, because they've already bonded with each other, to say, let's pick a time, you know, Thursdays from five to six, we're all Zoom in together. And then they could be anywhere, they could be traveling and have that support group. And we could talk more later if you want, but about why these psychosocial issues are so powerful, not only in terms of enabling people to make and maintain lifestyle choices that are life-enhancing than ones that are self-destructive, but also the direct benefit these, that these choices make. Perfect. So um, I'm wondering if you could help us understand some of the challenges you had in that 16 years and what type of hurdles were they placing in front of you that you had to jump over other than getting the... Uh, sort of a note from the head of the, <laughs> said these simple interventions were safe. Well, um, part of the problem was that um, the, the initial response was, uh, you know, we don't want to do that. And then because I'd been working with uh, President Clinton and we were having dinner together one night, in fact, I met with him the day after I'd, I'd had my initial meeting with the people at, at Medicare and he said, how was your day? And I said, it was challenging. He said, well, maybe I can help. I said, well, maybe you can. You're the president of the United States. You're, you're head of the executive branch, which Medicare includes. And uh, I thought, okay, well, that'll do it. And then, you know, 16 years later, we got that. And part of the problem was, is that they felt like we were, um, you know, not going, we were, we were kind of going over their head, if you will. And it was like, presidents come and go, members of Congress come and go, we'll, we'll still be here. And so I learned that, but, but at the same time, there was no other choice because if we hadn't done that, then, then the answer had been no. So that's kind of the nature when you're trying to do something innovative, it, it can often be challenging because it may threaten the, the conventional order or the, the conventional paradigm. And so, um, you know, doing something pioneering, you know, I grew up in Texas and they said, you know, how we tell pioneers in Texas is by the arrows in their packs. And so, um, you know, when you're trying to do something unconventional, it just kind of comes with the territory. 
But I remain deeply grateful to the people at CMS because they did, in fact, after thoroughly reviewing our data for 16 years, and we had support not only from you know, people in politics and from the most conservative Republicans to the most liberal Democrats. I mean, there's in this polarized political environment we're in, it's one of the few things that people really rallied around the heads of the AARP and other major health and, and uh, scientific and medical organizations. And so finally, they did that. And I think, you know, you can make a good case that medicine is inherently conservative because, you know, you don't want to embrace every fad that comes along. At the same time, 16 years is a, was a big chunk out of my life and, and it was really hard. But it was worth it because now we can really, I didn't want this just to be concierge medicine. I wanted this to be available to everybody. And so now it is. Yeah. So how many people have actually had access to it? And can you discuss some of the data and statistics that you've uh, compiled so far? Yeah, we, we're now in 36 states. We've been uh, partnering with a company called ShareCare to train hospitals and clinics and physician groups around the country. And as I mentioned briefly earlier, we're getting bigger changes in lifestyle. <clears throat> 85 to 90% of the people are still following it after a year. Better clinical outcomes, bigger cost savings, and better adherence. So let's take those one at a time. From the bigger changes in lifestyle, we've learned that what really motivates people to make sustainable changes is not fear of dying, it's joy of living. And when you make these changes, because these underlying biological mechanisms are so much more dynamic than we had once realized, most people feel so much better so quickly, it reframes the reason for making these changes from fear of dying or fear of something really bad happening like a heart attack or stroke, which is not sustainable, to joy and pleasure and love and feeling good, which are. I mean, when someone's had a heart attack, they'll do pretty much anything their doctor or nurse says for like, you know, a month or two. That's probably what you find as well. But it's not sustainable because, you know, we all know we're going to die. The mortality rate is still you know, 100% is one per person, but we don't think about it most of the time because it's too scary. So that's one of the, you know, one of the most common misconceptions a lot of doctors say is, well, I can get patients to take their, their pills, you know, their statins or their blood pressure pills or whatever, but there's no way they're going to change their lifestyle. It's too hard. And yet the pharma company's own data show that half to two thirds of people who are prescribed statins are not even taking them after just four to six months. And, you know, 20 to 30% of the prescriptions never even get filled. And the reason is, when I talked to patients, I said, why aren't you doing that? And they said, well, because in a, in a, they don't use these terms, but they're fear-based. In other words, take this pill. It's not going to make you feel better. Hopefully, it won't make you feel worse to prevent something really awful like a heart attack or stroke from happening years down the road, which people don't want to think about, so they generally stop, stop doing it. But when you change your lifestyle, most people feel so much better so quickly in ways that really matter to them. I mean, for example, people with heart disease often have angina or chest pain. And for someone who can't walk across the street without getting chest pain or make love with their spouse or play with their kids or go back to work without getting pain in their chest, and within a few, usually a few days to a few weeks, they're essentially pain-free and they can do all of those things. They say things like, well, I like eating you know, junk food, but not that much because what I gain is so much more than what I give up. And that's really the key is that we're always making choices. You know, you're talking to me, you could be talking to lots of other people. Hopefully these are choices worth making. But what's nice about it is that you feel so much better so quickly that it really reframes the reason for making these changes from fear of dying or fear of a bad thing happening to joy and pleasure and love and feeling good. So the, the bigger changes in lifestyle is a big part of that. And the support groups we have are not really the classical support group of you know, uh, exchanging recipes and shop, shopping tips and types of running shoes, but rather creating a safe environment where people can just connect and a deep and authentic level with each other. You know, 
So 50 years ago, most people had an extended family they saw regularly. They had a job that felt secure. They had a church or synagogue they went to regularly or a club they belonged to or a, a neighborhood with three or three generations of people. And today, most people don't have any of those things. And I wrote a book 20 years ago called Love and Survival that reviewed what were then hundreds and now literally tens of thousands of studies showing that people who are lonely and depressed and isolated, which I think is the real epidemic in our culture, are three to 10 times more likely to get sick and die prematurely compared to those who have a sense of love and connection and community. And I don't know anything in medicine that has that big, big an impact. So in doing these studies, I, I, we, you know, we spent a lot of time with these patients. We got to trust and, and know and even love each other. And I'd say, you know, teach me something. Why do you smoke? Why do you overeat? Why do you drink too much? Why do you abuse opioids? Why do you, you know, spend too much time playing video games? These behaviors seem so uh, maladaptive to me. And they'd look at me, they'd go, you don't get it. <laughs> you don't have a clue. These behaviors are very adaptive because they help us deal with our emotional pain. They help us get through the day. You know, I've had patients say things like, I've got 20 friends in this pack of cigarettes and they're always there for me and nobody else is. You're going to take away my 20 friends? What are you going to give me? You know, or food fills that void or fat coats my nerves and numbs the pain or sugar coats my nerves and numbs the pain or alcohol or opioids numb the pain or working all the time is a more socially acceptable way of doing that. And so Part of what we've learned, and I'm sure you, you know, you've learned this as well, uh, is that information is important, but it's not usually sufficient to motivate most people to change. I mean, we're drowning in information. Uh, you know, it's not like I tell somebody, hey, I want you to quit smoking. It's bad for you. They go, oh, I didn't know that. I'll quit today. You know, it's like it's on every pack of cigarettes. But if, if we can, so we can't just give information. It's important, but not sufficient. Or just focus on the behavior, but on these deeper issues that really, when we focus and create a safe environment in our support groups where people can just let their emotional defenses down, talk about their feelings, say, "What's hey, I might look like the perfect dad, but my kid's having problems or whatever. And someone else can say, yeah, mine too. Or gosh, you know, I've got problems or whatever. And then, then I just find that it, it heals that isolation and people are much more likely to make and maintain lifestyle choices that are life enhancing than ones that are self-destructive. So that's the, you know, the bigger changes in lifestyle, better clinical outcomes, the bigger cost savings, we're finding that we can cut costs in half in the first year. Uh, we did a study with Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield, and they found that in the first year, compared to a, a matched control group, that they, their costs were 50% lower. And when they looked at the subgroup of people that they'd spent at least $25,000 on in the previous year, they were 400% lower. Uh, Highmark, I mean, uh, Mutual of Omaha found they cut their costs by almost 80% in the first year. And why that's important is that when I went to insurance companies, they'd say, well, why, you know, a third of people change insurance companies every year when they change employment, so why should we spend our money today for some future benefit that someone else is gonna get? And I'd say, well, because it's the right thing to do, and that was not the most persuasive argument. So, but when I could show them that in the first year that they could cut their, cut their costs to such a degree, then that such a degree, that really made it much more uh, motivating. And it turns out that 5% of people account for 50 to 80% of all healthcare costs. And these are the ones with chronic diseases that because we're offering lifestyle changes, not only to help prevent disease, but actually to treat or even reverse it. Uh, I'm, I feel that I helped develop called lifestyle medicine, which you know, you're a, you're a, a big uh, a contributor and, and advocate and pioneer in that field as well. Um, we find that um, we can actually show cost savings that are quite dramatic in the first year. Great. Are there any other elements of the psychosocial interventions you mentioned earlier that you wanted like to expand on in addition to what you just previously mentioned? Yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate the questions. Um, you know, love is one of those words that, uh, one of those four-letter words that you're not really supposed to talk about as a scientist or as a doctor. 
Uh, and so I would use terms like psychosocial support, you know, or bonding or whatever. Um, but it really is. It's a, this is a love-based program. It's a conspiracy of love in many ways because, you know, um, when you're feeling a sense of, I mean, study after study, as I mentioned briefly, has shown that people who are, who are lonely and depressed are three to 10 times more likely to get sick and die prematurely. That's how I got interested in this whole field uh, 40 years ago when I was a, a freshman in college at Rice University in Houston, got suicidally depressed. And out of that really came my interest that that was my doorway into learning about this. And so by creating a, an environment that feels nurturing and loving, that the support group, you know, it's the part of our work that people, you know, they make the most fun of, oh, you live in California, you know, it's an altered state, you know, they'll do anything there, although I'm actually from Texas. And I, and I, and I used to get defensive and say, no, 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 look at our quantitative arteriograms and our radionuclide ventriculograms and our cardiac positron emission tomography and blah, blah, blah. And then one day I thought, you know what? It is a it is a touchy feely program, you know. It is a, a love based program. That's what makes it work so well. We are creatures of community. That's how we've survived as a species all these years. And so, that's why in this book, the fourth component is you know, it's eat well, move more, stress less, is love more, because the love part is really what enables people to make these other changes, and it has healing benefits in its own right. You know, even the word healing comes from the root to make whole, and yoga comes from the the Sanskrit to yoke, to unite, union. These are really old ideas that we're rediscovering. Yeah, that's an interesting concept and uh, perspective. And I suspect you encountered some resistance in adopting that because it, it seems, it's, it typically isn't included in a, in a traditional uh, medical intervention. And it's true. And I remember um, Kim Williams is um, uh, a cardiologist, uh, chief of cardiology at Rush University in Chicago. And was the president of the American College of Cardiology. And a few years ago, he found that his own cholesterol level was really high, did a literature review, came across our work, went on our program, cut it from 170 to uh, in half, and uh, became a proponent of this. And so we did the first um, uh, large-scale symposium at the American College of Cardiology's scientific sessions in Chicago, and over a 1,000 cardiologists came on lifestyle medicine. And I, I gave the lecture on love and, and support. And, you know, it was really kind of ironic to be, you know, the heart is the symbol of love, and yet it's something we don't really talk much about in cardiology. And so there I was kind of giving the first, probably the first lecture ever on love at uh, one of the most prestigious cardiology meetings. And it was it met with such great support because there's a hunger for this. You know, that is the uh, undiagnosed disease. You know, more, more, as you know, and you've written about, more money is spent on, on antidepressants as well as cholesterol-lowering drugs than pretty much anything else. And so we need to address this because telling what I learned when I was so depressed when I was in college that you could tell somebody who's lonely and depressed that they're going to live longer if they just change their diet or move more or eat well or stress less or whatever. It doesn't work for them. They say, I'm just trying to survive. I'm just trying to get through the day. I don't know if I want to live longer. You know, we have this assumption that everybody wants to live longer, especially here in, in the Bay Area where all the tech people are trying to find ways to live forever. But I think that just the act of knowing that we're mortal and the act of understanding what really brings happiness, that when we choose not to eat certain foods, you know, is that deprivation? Well, it can be. Or why is it that all spiritual traditions have dietary guidelines, even they're often in conflict with each other? And I think whatever the intrinsic benefit of eating or not eating certain foods, just the act of choosing not to do something that you otherwise could do imbues those choices with meaning. And if they're meaningful, then they're sustainable. Or choosing to be in a monogamous sexual relationship with someone. Is that like the ball and chain? Well, you know, it could be. Is that a moral thing? Well, it could be, but 
to me, it's more like these are the behaviors that bring the most pleasure into our life, that what you gain is so much more than what you give up. Instead of digging a lot of shallow wells and never reaching water, you know, dig one deep one and reach the wellspring. And so Anne and I, who've been uh, uh, working together for more than 20 years and co-authored this book, decided when we got, uh, became lovers many years ago to be in a committed monogamous relationship because you, know, you can only be intimate with someone to the degree that you can open your heart and be vulnerable to them. And you can only do that to the degree that you feel safe. So if you really feel safe because of that commitment, then we're finding that we're more intimate and the more intimate we are, the more erotic it becomes and the more pleasurable it becomes. And so here again, this whole book is really about the way to make sustainable changes is to realize that the, the lifestyle choices that bring meaning and pleasure to our lives are the ones that are really ones that are sustainable. So how do you integrate meditation and yoga practice uh, into that? How do you merge those to support, support that process? Yeah, good question. Well, um, when Medicare and other insurance companies are paying for our program, it's four hours at a time, twice a week for four hours for nine weeks. And one of those four hours is meditation and yoga. And part of what we've learned is that Meditation is just the practice of focusing your awareness into one thing. And whatever it is, it could be a sound, it could be religious, it could be secular, it's whatever you want it to be. But when you can focus your awareness, a lot of good things happen. The first is you get better at focusing and concentrating. So whether you're in the sports world, you know, world-class athletes use meditation because at that level, it's really more of a mental game. It gives them a competitive advantage. Meditation also can lower your blood pressure and your cholesterol levels. And, you know, the fight or flight response is one of the core mechanisms that lead to so many different diseases. It makes your fuse longer. Things don't bother you as much. Also, on a purely sensual level, when you're, whether it's food or sex or music or art or massage, when you really focus on it, you, can, you get more pleasure with fewer calories if you're eating food, for example. You know, we've all had the experience of eating mindlessly, you know, while watching TV and you're kind of like looking at the movie and like, you look down and go like, oh, who ate this? You know, it's like I got all the calories and not much of the pleasure. But if I'm really focusing on close my eyes, my, Anne, my wife Anne has this wonderful guided meditation called Eating with Ecstasy. If you just focus on, like I love dark chocolate, so I'll have a piece of really high quality dark chocolate, close my eyes. I can spend three or four or five minutes just letting it melt in my mouth and letting all, noticing all the flavors and textures and harmonics of, of flavor as they come through. You know, the first bite is always the best anyway. And if you just have one bite and you really pay attention to it, it can be incredibly pleasurable with very few calories and fat and sugar and things like that. And the other thing that happens when you meditate is that you rediscover inner sources of peace and joy and well-being. You know, our whole culture teaches us that we get that from our, our health is outside ourselves. Our peace of mind is out there somewhere. You know, the whole advertising industry is based on the idea that Gosh, if only I had more blank, you fill in the blank, more money, more power, more beauty, more accomplishment, more sex, whatever, then I'd be happy. And once you set up that view of the world, as I learned when I was so suicidally depressed in college, however, it turns out you feel bad. So if I think if only I could get it, whatever that is, then until I get it, I'm stressed. If someone else gets it and I don't, then I'm really stressed. And it makes me feel like we live in this very competitive zero-sum game, dog-eat-dog -dog world, the, less, I, the more you get, the less there is for me, and so on. But even if I get it, it's great for a little bit. It's like, ah, I'm happy now, you know? But it's usually soon followed by either now what, it's never enough. I remember one of my patients years ago said, uh, I can't even enjoy the view from the mountain I've climbed, I'm already looking over the next one. Or if it's not now what, it's so what, big deal, it doesn't really provide the lasting meaning that I thought it would. And so people say things like, you know, the letdown that comes from accomplishing a goal is so great. I always make sure I've got a dozen projects going at the same time so I can move, you know, distract myself. 
And so the Swami that I studied with, Swami Satchidananda, who really helped me when I was so depressed, would say things like, you know, we're born fine and we, and we define ourselves by setting ourselves apart. I'm this, I'm that, whatever. Or we're born with a sense of ease and we disturb that and we become diseased. And so it's a different conception of health than one I was trained in, as, in, in medical school and probably one that different than what you were originally trained in, which is that it's our nature to be peaceful and, and, and usually healthy. And so instead of saying, what am I lacking that I need to get in order to be healthy, to say, what am I doing that's disturbing my own sense of ease, which I can actually do something about. It's not a way of blaming myself, but a way of empowering myself. And then I can go out in the world and often accomplish even more, but without so much of the stresses and so on. And then if you take meditation even further, it gives you that double vision, that sense of transcendence, that on one level, you know, we're separate. You're you and I'm me, and we can have fun talking to each other today. But another level, we're part of something larger that connects us all. Uh, the, the teacher that I had would talk about how, like in an old-style movie projector, you know, there's the light behind the projector, and then it gets filtered through the film and all these dramas and names and forms and so on that we can enjoy, as long as we can also understand that beyond all that duality, there's this, this one light behind that. And the paradox is that it can actually make life that much more enjoyable to the extent that we don't get caught up in all those dramas. You know, this teacher said, people would say, what are you, a Hindu? He'd say, no, I'm an undo, which is part of where the title of the book came from. You know? And so then when we can work at that level, I mean, my whole approach is, uh, like yours, is really about addressing the underlying cause of why people get sick. And in my limited understanding, these are the things that are harder to measure scientifically and ultimately the ones that are the most meaningful and, and often the most sustainable. Yeah. So Tim Ferriss, I'm sure you're familiar with, has interviewed a lot of people and has compiled uh, the best of the interviews and correlated that most of the successful people he interviews are meditating. And I think it seems to be a general consensus in the public of the value of meditation. But you've been doing it for a long time, well before it became popular. It sounds like you started it when you were in college or close to that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering if we, you can describe your personal meditation practice and what you would recommend for someone just starting this. Well, that's a good question. I started meditating when I was suicidally depressed. And I took, I was about ready to do myself in and I got so sick from having be so stressed out that with infectious mononucleosis, I couldn't even get out of bed. My parents saw what a wreck I was, went home to Dallas and my crazy plan was to get strong enough to kill myself, as crazy as that sounds. And there's an old saying that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And my older sister had studied with this spiritual teacher and uh, it really helped her out. So my parents decided to have a cocktail party for the Swami. This was in Dallas in 1972. You can imagine how strange that was. And uh, there's an old saying, as I mentioned, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. So in walks this kind of central casting looking uh, Swami with long saffron robes and white beard and so on. And he went on, he started by saying that nothing can bring you lasting happiness, which I'd already figured out, except he was glowing and I was ready to do myself in. And he went on to say what, again, probably sounds like a new age cliche, but turn my life around, which is nothing can bring that to you. That's the bad news. But the good news is we already have that if we can just stop disturbing that. And that meditation was one of the tools that he taught me to begin to quiet down my mind, to begin even getting glimpses of that. And so at the end of a long meditation, to, when you're feeling more peaceful, it's really helpful to point out to yourself that the meditation didn't bring that to you. You know, the ancient swamis, and for that matter, rabbis and priests and monks and nuns and whoever, didn't develop these techniques to, to, you know, to bring you a sense of peace, but rather to help stop disturbing what's already there. Uh, and it can give you the direct experience of that. And the other thing that I have found that's been enormously helpful to me 
and I'm curious to know if, if you find this to be true as well, is that when I quiet down my mind, I can get greater access to my own inner wisdom, my own that what sometimes goes by the, the still small voice within or the teacher within or the guru within or whatever name you want to give to that. It's the voice that we all have that speaks very clearly, but and it often gets drowned out by the chatter of everyday life. But someone that sometimes wakes you up at three in the morning says, hey, Dean, listen up, pay attention. You're not doing something that's in your best interest. Uh, but we can access it directly. And I've learned to do that. And all of the research that I've done was thought impossible when we started doing it. But in addition to reading the scientific literature, I'd, I'd listen to that inner voice and it'd say, yes, I think this is going to work. And then I kind of reverse engineer and start reading all the studies and say, why would this work? And what are the mechanisms by what that work? And how can we really test that in a way that would be credible and so on? And so I would encourage anyone watching this, when you meditate, uh, at the end of a meditation, when you're feeling more peaceful, just ask yourself a simple question. What am I not paying attention to that would be helpful, that, would, that I need to hear? And just listen, and you'd be amazed at what comes out. So you can meditate in you know, an infinite number of different ways, but to me, focusing on a sound is one of the easiest and the most accessible. And there are certain sounds that throughout different cultures and religions and secular have been found to be very soothing. They, are, they generally are words that start with an O or an A and end with an M or an N, like OM is a classic one, or even the word one, or a mother or father humming to their child or amen, or amin, or salam, or shalom. These are words that are often translated to mean peace because just the act of expressing them, the vibration is a very peaceful one. So if you want to learn how to meditate, just we can do it right now. It takes all of like 30 seconds. Close your eyes, assuming you're not in a car or a, you know, someplace that you need to be looking. And just take a deep breath and bring your awareness to the sound. So let's just use the word one because it's secular, won't offend anyone. So if you just go one, and just focusing on the humming sound, or om, or shalom, or salam, whatever it is. That, and then when you run out of air, do it again, over and over again. Now, what invariably, invariably will happen is your mind will start to wander. You'll start to think about the thousand things you should be doing or forgot to do or whatever. And that's just normal. Everybody's mind wanders. So when you become aware that you're thinking about something else, just gently but firmly bring it back to the sound over and over and over again. And then, what happens, and, and then your mind really begins to quiet down in a very deep way. Is it important to vocalize that sound? That's a good question. I find it easier, especially when I'm beginning to vocalize it. My mind wanders less, and you can actually feel the, the peaceful vibration. But you can do this silently. I find, you know, if I'm, an, I'm like you, I'm on a lot of airplanes, you know, that's a good place to do it. Or if you're in an Uber, uh, a Lyft, and you, end up, you don't have to be driving, just close your eyes. And even, you know... The, 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 what I find is that the consistency is more important even than the duration, just doing a little every day. Mm -hmm. And I often have people say things to me like, you know, I used to have a short fuse and I'd explode easily, but now my fuse is longer. Things don't bother me as much. And just a few minutes at the beginning of the day or the end of the day can really make a huge difference. And if you can do more, even better. But, you know, sometimes I'll play a little game with myself. I'll say, yeah, I'm too busy. I don't have time to meditate for half an hour. I'd say, well, do you have a minute? And if I have to admit to myself I don't have a minute, then I have to admit my life is so out of balance. It's easier just to do the minute. And of course, once you do the minute, chances are you're going to do more anyway because it's really getting started. That's always the hard part. But even a minute has benefits. And just kind of like if you hear a song on the radio and you find yourself humming it later in the day, subconsciously your mind is meditating throughout the day, even if you're not aware of it. So your specific practice is, is a formalized where you commit to 20, 30 minutes or even longer in the morning or at night? Or do you find that you're doing a, a hybrid of the, something like that and then these several minute pauses through the day, we're able to focus on that? 
It depends on the day. I almost always start the day with a meditation because that's one thing I can control. So I'll get up a few minutes early and I find that the meditation gives me actually a deeper state of relaxation than sleep. And so it's, uh, it's, it's, that doesn't really cost me net, net anything because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm using that time that I would be sleeping to meditate. And then during the day when I can find moments, I do it then as well. And the other thing about meditation is on a purely, you know, people tend to think of meditation as kind of being an ascetic practice, but it's a profoundly sensual one. You know, as we mentioned earlier, food, or sex, or music, or art, or massage, or anything sensual, when you really focus on it, you enjoy it a lot more fully, and you don't really need as much of it to have an even greater sense of pleasure. Excellent. So in many ways, meditation could be viewed as, a, as an exercise, as a mental exercise, of course. And I'm wondering if you integrate any personal uh, physical exercises into your program. Oh, we do. The program is eat well, move more, stress less, and love more. And the exercise is the move more part. And it's, it's uh, aerobic exercise, you know, walking, for example, for many people, strength training, and stretching. Uh, all three generally are good. And so I have a trainer that I work with, but I also try to do something every day. And to the extent that people can incorporate, first of all, if you like it, you're going to do it. So the best kind of exercise is the one that you enjoy doing. And I find that just simple things, if I can, like getting a portable phone and walking around my office when I'm on the phone, you know, or I have a treadmill desk, but even if you don't invest that much, just buy a portable phone and walk around when you're on the phone, that can make a huge difference. You know, taking the stairs, you know, I used to get annoyed when I couldn't find a parking place near the gym. So I thought, that's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, so I, I would deliberately park farther away, which, you know, would give me a little more exercise and reduce the stress of, of not having to find one. So things like that can make little, little things can go a long way. I'm a big fan of walking and fortunately I live close to the beach. I'm pretty much able to do that most of the day that I'm not days I'm not traveling and the weather's decent, which is most of the time in Florida. So, uh, and I've done that for a few years, but I just recently learned of a way to enhance that pretty simply. Uh, are, are you familiar with EECP? I am. The counter pulsation. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it's a, it's an expensive modality and it's certainly in my view, and I suspect yours also a far better approach than doing a, a coronary bypass or a stent for relief, relief of angina or even heart failure. So um, this, you actually can simulate that intervention by walking if you get your heart rate high enough. So if you're walking up a hill, that would do it, but I live on a flat beach. So I've gotten some ankle weights and, it, and there's actually a device that you can get, it's called CounterPace, all one word, counterpace.com. And you can wear it, it measures your heart rate and it measures your walking frequency and it can sync it up so that actually augmenting the the backflow to the heart during the diastolic phase. So you're actually getting this benefit of EECP while you're walking. So it's like you're getting, you're doubling your benefit. Uh, and you know, heart disease, of course, is such a big issue and one to focus on your program. Yeah, well, I think, you know, just any kind of exercise is gonna squeeze your muscles. Yeah. And while but the heart- in conjunction when it's in diastole, you know, so you can- Yeah, that's true. And, and the, um, the heart, you know, will do that through the arteries, the veins have a much lower pressure and the lymphatic system even less. And so just, you know, the walking in addition to, um, you know, exercising, you're actually squeezing and kind of milking the, the lymph, which is kind of the garbage sewers of our body to be able to empty out into your thoracic duct and to kind of help detoxify your body. Uh, and, uh, and so, Anything that, if it's ankle weights or anything that helps you do that more efficiently and something that you enjoy, I'm all in favor of. Yeah. So have you looked into uh, compressed eating windows or time-restricted feedings as at augmenting the benefits for those who are insulin resistant and struggling with weight? 
We do. Um, the, in the book, I recommend to try to make breakfast and lunch or big meals, and then to try to eat a much smaller dinner, if at all, and to try to eat it early enough so that you have basically uh, intermittent fasting uh, every day. If you're not, if you can finish your, your dinner by six or maybe even seven, and then you don't eat and maybe eat a later breakfast, so that gives you 12 hours to 14 hours of not eating. First of all, you sleep better because your body's not trying to work and process your food while you're, digest your food while you're, while you're trying to rest and sleep. And also there's just a lot of evidence that that kind of gives your body a chance to detoxify and to, and to clean itself out. So I, uh, you know, it's one of the reasons why when you eat a, a, a healthier diet, um, not just what you eat, but how you eat and when you eat um, make a difference as well. Yeah, the, the challenge with that, especially when you're integrating your recommendations, is this, the psychosocial intervention is that most of us in our culture tend to have dinner, and that's the time we connect with our family or loved ones. It's so true. If you're, if you're pushing back that window to you know three hours before bedtime, then it could be a challenge. But it, you know, it's it's just an opportunity for exploring some novel approaches, I guess. Yeah, and you have the social interactions, but you know you don't have to eat as much. You know, then even if you just, even if you can't make it, it's it's a continuum. So to the degree you can eat earlier and eat lighter, uh, you're going to be better off. That's great. So, do you have any uh, example, fond examples of uh, success stories of those who've adopted your program? Oh yeah, if you go to our website, which is ornish.com, there's a whole, there's you know probably a hundred or so video testimonials. Um, we have several people who were, and one of them which, whom I wrote about in the book, uh, who had such bad heart disease, they were on the heart transplant list. And while waiting for a, a donor, because there's a shortage of people who are willing to donate their hearts, uh, he went through our program at UCLA, and after nine weeks, he improved so much, he didn't need a heart transplant anymore. It's like, what's the more radical intervention here? You know, a, a heart transplant, which costs a million and a half dollars, and a lifetime of immunosuppressive drugs, or eat well, move more, stress less, love more. We have over a dozen cases like that. And what I tried to do in the book was to present this new unifying theory that although we tend to think of heart disease and diabetes and prostate cancer and Alzheimer's as being fundamentally different diseases, I'm, I'm, you know, we were both trained to view them as being fundamentally different. I'm putting forth this kind of radically new unifying theory, which is that they're really not different diseases, that they're different manifestations of the same underlying biological mechanisms that are disordered. Things like chronic inflammation, oxidative stress, changes in microbiome, and changes in gene expression, and telomeres, and autophagy, and angiogenesis. And each one of these, in turn, is directly influenced by what we eat, how we respond to stress, how much exercise we get, and how much love and support we, we have. And because these underlying mechanisms are so dynamic, most people feel so much better. We have these amazing uh, testimonials from people, which is what gets me out of bed every day. But also, it's a way of helping to understand, you know, I think personalized medicine has some real benefits when you're talking about, you know, if you have a pancreatic cancer or a melanoma and you want to target an immunotherapy based on your particular cell type, that's awesome. But for the vast majority of chronic diseases, it wasn't like we said there was one, we found that over 40 years of work that there was one diet and lifestyle program for reversing heart disease and a different one for diabetes or prostate cancer or heart disease, whatever, or, or Alzheimer's. It was the same for all of these. And, and why in, in China or in Asian countries, until 50 or 60 years ago, they had such low rates of these chronic diseases until they started to you know, eat like us and live like us and all too often die like us, is that they have the same gene diversity that we have here, 
but for example, even if you're genetically not very efficient at metabolizing, you know, refined carbohydrates, for example, or, or fat in your diet, if you're not eating that much of them, those differences tend not to matter so much. And so what I'm trying to do in this book is to say that really, uh, and it's one of the reasons why you find so many of these diseases uh, as comorbidities. People who have heart disease often also have high blood pressure or diabetes or high cholesterol or, you know, other or chronic inflammation because they're really all different manifestations of the same underlying cause. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And in fact, uh, one of my future books, probably 2020 or 21, is The Unifying Theory of Disease, which focuses on these oxidative stressors and inflammatory conditions and using the dietary lifestyle that recommended you had, but also molecular biology and all the magnificent new research and these investigators have been exploring these things for decades and developing this fountain of knowledge. Yes. So that's essentially that you can utilize and really uh, help address some of these causes. Because you're right, it's just a wide for almost every disease has some of these foundational causes. And if you can address them, you don't just treat one, you treat all of them, which is exactly. one of, you know, most people with cancer don't die from the cancer. They die from the treatment because the treatment causes an acceleration of the other conditions, the oxidative stressors and the inflammation and telomere shortening and, over, and senescent cells and all of that. So it's a big issue. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I'll look forward to reading your book when it comes out. That, well, I'd like to give you a draft because, I, you know, someone with your insights and experience, I would love to have your feedback. On. I'd be delighted and honored to do that. That'd be great. So uh, I'm interested in helping our viewers understand how they can identify someone, uh, a participating center where they can access your program because literally, I mean, everyone watching this, either themselves personally or someone they know of, would benefit from participating for some chronic disease. And the, the huge plus here is that it's covered by insurance. Yes. In most cases. So how would they find that? Well, I appreciate the question. So the book is obviously the best place to begin, and everything is in the book. So you can do the whole program just from that. It's a pretty uh, small investment for, for that. Yeah, uh, but on our website, uh, they guided. They want, they yes. want, yeah. for, for, if you want more than that, uh, we've been training hospitals and clinics and physician groups around the country. We're still on the steep part of that. We're in about 36 states now. And if your viewers go to Ornish.com, there's a listing of all the sites that we've trained and certified. Um, my wife, Anne, who's amazing, um, is, the, is developing uh, support groups that we can create for people at no cost to them. So that'll also be available on the Ornish.com site in January as well. Great. And if there is a, what does it take to qualify to become considered for training and become certified? Is, is it have to be a large physician group? Is it a medical no. center? No, anybody. Um, I mean, we, from the physician, from the provider standpoint, if you're a doctor, a nurse, a meditation, a yoga teacher, exercise physiologist, psychologist, uh, doctor, nurse, what am I, uh, or... Uh, NP, nurse practitioner, physician's assistant. That's right. Any of them. Um, then, then you can be trained by us and certified by us. Um, and, uh, you know, Medicare and most insurance companies will pay the same reimbursement, whether it's offered in a physician's office or in a, uh, in a hospital or, wow. or a large academic institution, which is a real breakthrough. So now we're really creating a whole new paradigm of, of healthcare rather than sick care that's based on that. And here again, if you just all uh, go through the Ornish.com site, uh, Medicare is just currently paying for reversing heart disease. Some of the other insurance companies are covering it 
not only for heart disease, but for type 2 diabetes or even two or more risk factors like obesity, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, and so on. So most people will be covered if they, uh, if they can go to one of our programs. Well, again, I, I think that's your, one of your biggest accomplishments, really. I to, do too. To establish the reimbursability of that and the availability for so many people. I mean, you've, you've really opened up the door. So it's from my perspective, and I didn't realize that you didn't, I thought you'd have to be a medical center or something to get that certification. So anyone of the groups that you mentioned earlier, you know, it'd be crazy not to apply for this. Maybe you can describe for our viewers, because many of them are healthcare professionals, what the process looks like to become certified so that you could be eligible for reimbursement from the insurance companies. Well, I, I, again, I appreciate the question. So our, our training is a combination of didactic and experiential. We've learned that the best way to teach this is to go through it yourself, even if you don't have any conditions. So people come to the Bay Area here, uh, and we put them through the program for three and a half days. It's just like a, a patient would go through it. So they go, they eat the food, they do the meditation and yoga, they have the exercise, they have the support groups, and so on. But in addition, we have lectures from me and other people that I've worked with for many years about the scientific basis of this and how to understand the literature and incorporate that into your life. And then we have ongoing training both on site and through uh, video technologies. We have yearly uh, re-accreditation -re for people just to make sure we can maintain the quality of the program. And most people who do it say, gosh, you know, this is what I've been waiting for. This is why I went into healthcare, you know, because it allows us, you know, if we have to spend, you know, if we're just a collection of algorithms, we're going to get replaced by artificial intelligence and probably an iPhone app before long, you know. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> within our lifetime. <laughs> within a, probably in the next five years. Yeah. And so for me, at least, it's, it's our part of our conspiracy of love in that when you go through this program and you can really experience to what a difference it can make, you know, we so often think that advances in medicine have to be something really high tech and expensive, a new drug or laser or a new you know, device or whatever. And so I think our unique contribution has been to use these very high-tech, expensive, state-of-the-art scientific measures to prove how powerful these very simple and low-tech and low-cost observations and interventions can be. But it's one thing to say that. It's another thing to actually experience it. And so even in three and a half days, most people find that they have life-transforming experiences, which make them that much more passionate and committed and effective in training their patients that they ultimately will be working with. Well, that is just outstanding. So if you are a healthcare professional watching this, uh, I, I would strongly encourage you to go to Ornish.com and find out the details so you can head out to the Bay Area and, and literally uh, take the training and become certified so you can offer this to a large number of people because it's, there's just a desperate need for this type of intervention. There is, and that's what made the 16 years of Medicare worth it because, uh, you know, it, now it's financially viable and sustainable. For me, you know, money has never been the primary motivator. In fact, I even had a spiritual vision years ago that if that were my primary goal, I would have nothing. But if I'm just focusing on doing good work, then all the money seems to follow. And that's, I mean, even when I moved out here after finishing my medical residency in, in Boston at Mass General and moved to UCSF to, do, uh, to join the faculty in, in 84, uh, we'd raised a certain amount of money to do this reversing heart disease research. And then uh, some of the people who gave the money were, uh, uh, weren't able to fulfill their pledges for a variety of reasons. And so we said, let's just do it. And somehow the money will come. And I've, I've always taken that attitude. And every day on the last day of the month, you know, some, some unknown angel would come forward that enabled us to, to finally do it. And part of the problem is when you're doing research that's truly disruptive, 
it's hard to get funding for it because people think, why should we waste our money on proving you can reverse heart disease when everyone knows that can't be done? And without the funding, you can't prove it. And if they don't think they want to, if they don't think it's possible, then they don't want to fund it. So we just raised the money as we went along. And fortunately, we were able to show that. And we're doing the same now. We're doing the first randomized trial uh, to see if we can uh, reverse the progression of early stage Alzheimer's disease. I think we're at a place with Alzheimer's very similar to what we were with heart disease 40 years ago. And so the new book, Undo It, is really a way of kind of synthesizing these decades of experience and to say, look, you know, the, the, it begins with a, a quote from Albert Einstein, one of my favorite quotes that says, if you can't make it simple, you don't understand it well enough, you know. And so because I've been doing this for most of my adult life, I can really kind of drill down to say, it's really not that hard, you know, with all this, there's, you know, thousands of studies and so on that, that uh, we draw from, and many of which are included in the book. But I wanted to make it radically simple for people, kind of like what Steve Jobs did with the iPhone, you know, that you don't need a user manual, you don't have to know how to code, you don't have to know my three-year-old when she first got one of the first iPhones, you know, was able to use it because it's just intuitive. And that's the way we wanted to present this book, this, uh, this new book on Do It. And I think to a large degree, it's, it's succeeding from the, from the feedback that we're getting because it's really not that hard, you know. My favorite key on the computer has always been the undo button. I thought, wouldn't it be nice if we had one of these in our life? And, and now we do. That's great. So I'm glad to hear that you're doing some work in Alzheimer's uh, and wondering if you had considered uh, collaborating with Dale Bredesen, uh, who's, a, who's a really major investigator, as I'm sure you well know. But his, his challenge has been that he's got this 36 different approaches he's looking at, and it just conflicts with the normal model because they only want to look at one, and that's it. Yeah. And, and take a comprehensive approach. Well, that's been an issue for me throughout my whole 40-year career is people like to have one independent variable, one dependent variable, and keep everything else constant. But that's a myth anyway, because you're never just changing one thing. You may think you are. You know, I might say, let's just do an exercise intervention, and we're only going to do exercise. But, you know, when you're exercising people, you're giving them a sense of control, a sense of hope, positive expectation. They're more aware of how they feel, so they're more likely to eat healthier, and all these things kind of interact. So we said, look, let's take a combined approach. Now, Dale has talked publicly that his program is really based on, on, on my work. And we had at one point talked about doing a study together, but he wanted to go and write a book and get it out there. And I wanted to do the research first. And mm. you know, there, I, there's no criticism there at all. My approach has always been, let's do randomized trials showing that something works. And once we've proven it works, then we can you know, get it out there to the general public. But I, I just don't want to say anything until I can really have the proof that it really uh, can work. So I'm curious as to what your big vision for the future is, and, and assuming uh, that you could have your wishes fulfilled, and uh, <laughs> what, what, would, what, what would it be? Uh, world peace. Uh, <laughs> no, no, on a practical level, related to your work, something where you have definite influence over. Well, you know, if we can show that we can reverse Alzheimer's disease, which I'm hoping that we'll be able to show, my instincts are that, that we will, uh, that'll be a major contribution. And my mother died of Alzheimer's and all of her siblings did. So I'm sure I have the gene for it as well. I haven't tested it. Um, but, you know, there are, no, there are no good drugs for treating it or for preventing it. Um, James Watson, you know, Watson and Crick, who decoded GNA for the first time, famously, when he first was one of the first people to get his genome sequence, said, I want to know everything except the ApoE4 gene, because why would I want to know if I'm, you know, likely to get Alzheimer's if there's nothing I can do about it? But I think there's a lot we can do about it. And so um, it'll give a lot of people new hope and new choices if we can show that. If we can continue, as we will, to grow our uh, training so that we're everywhere and we can really create this new model and continue to collect data on it 
And, um, and in this Alzheimer's study, we'll be measuring <coughs> not only the changes in cognitive function, but also changes in uh, what's happening with their telomeres, with their microbiome, with their genomics, their proteomics, their changes in the DNA clock, and so on. <clears throat> so we'll have a really, not only idea of whether we can reverse it, but what some of the mechanisms are that enable us to do that. And when do you anticipate having this test finished? <clears throat> well, probably in a year or so, maybe a year not and a half. Soon. No, not that long. Yeah, Dale has uh, published some really interesting case reports, very impressive on this reversal, and I'm sure your study will e even further enhance that. I hope so. He published a study of 10 patients, and uh, eight of whom showed <clears throat> significant improvement in their cognitive function. So the combination of those case reports, the fact that the same risk factors for heart disease and diabetes you find for Alzheimer's as well, the epidemiological data, the animal studies, the interventions that have used like the finger study and the pointer trial and the, the MEND and the MIND studies have shown that less intensive interventions may slow or even stop the progression of early stage Alzheimer's very much the way it was 40 years ago with heart disease. We think a more intensive intervention may actually be able to reverse it. So stay tuned. That's great. Well, I look forward to your pioneering efforts in that area also and uh, can and really deeply want, I'd like to express my deep gratitude for putting in the hard work and effort over 16 years to put that program together that I think is really going to make such a massive impact because Thank you. we can't wait until the system collapses, which is I was what I believe is going to ultimately happen. It's going to, going to collapse. It may not collapse for 10 or 20 years, but it will collapse. And in the meantime, your hard work can facilitate the transition of so many thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of people who desperately need this work. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. And I, you know, I'm, it, it took us a long time with Medicare, but they've been very supportive. And uh, I think that over time that the, you know, they, they see this more and more, you know, we're, we're at a con we have, there's a convergence of forces that make this book and these ideas, the right idea at the right time. On the one hand, as you know, from having reviewed a lot of these in your, in your website, that um, the, the data looking are showing that stents and angioplasties in stable patients really don't work. You know, they don't prolong life, they don't prevent heart attacks. And they said, well, at least they reduce angina. And in the Orbita study a year ago, where they actually, I don't know how they got this through the Human Studies Committee, they did sham stents, fake stents, on half the people. And they found that those who got the fake stents, they, did, they just put the tube all the way up in their heart and pulled it out with, without putting the stent in, they showed the same reduction in angina of those who had the stents in. So then they said, well, okay, well, if we just stent the most severely blocked ones, uh, what they call the fractional flow reserve, that'll work. And I have a letter coming out in the New England Journal of Medicine this week where I said, when we looked at those studies, that that didn't show it either. At the same time, we've shown in a series of studies that we can actually reverse the progression of even severe heart disease in most people simply by making these lifestyle changes. Mm -hmm. In the case of early stage prostate cancer, there are two 10-year studies that were in the New England Journal of Medicine, and they both showed that most men who have early stage prostate cancer, who have radiation or surgery to remove their prostate, don't live any longer than those who do nothing. It turns out that maybe one out of 49 or 50 men actually benefit from the surgery radiation because they have really aggressive disease. But the others often get maimed in the most personal ways. They're often either you know, wearing a diaper because they're incontinent or they can't have sex because they're impotent for no real benefit at huge economic and huge personal cost. But if the choice is between doing nothing and something, most guys who know they have biopsy-proven prostate cancer want to quit do something, even if the treatment is worse than doing nothing. So we can give people a third alternative which is that we did a randomized trial 
with Dr. Peter Carroll, the chair of urology at UCSF, one of the probably the leading urologists on the planet now, and the late Dr. Bill Fair when he was the chair of urology at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. When you're doing these kinds of studies, it's great to work with the people who are the most uh, thoughtful and influential, incredible. We found that these same lifestyle changes could slow, stop, and often even reverse the progression of men with early stage prostate cancer. So <clears throat> there's a third alternative there now as well. And as you know, with type 2 diabetes, getting your blood sugar down with drugs <clears throat> may not reduce the horrible complications of type 2 diabetes, you know, the blindness and kidney failure and amputations and impotence and heart attacks and strokes. But getting it down with diet and lifestyle, you can, you can not only help prevent it, but often even reverse it. And so I think that the combination of the convergence of forces showing that the traditional approaches aren't working as well as we thought, these other approaches work even better than we thought, and how much money that we can save and empower people. And if we really want to make healthcare available to everyone, when we spent 86% of the $3.6 trillion we spent last year on healthcare, which is mostly sick care, as you know, are for treating chronic diseases that can often be prevented or often even reversed by making these same lifestyle changes. Then we can make better care available to more people at lower cost, and the only side effects are good ones. That's terrific. Well, I think that's a good point to close out and remind people uh, the basics and that your book uh, really summarizes most of what we discussed, but uh, a lot of what we discussed, but there's much more useful details and motivation, motivating statistics in the book. So the book is Undo It, and the program is available if you go to Ornish.com uh, to be reimbursed uh, by your insurance carriers. And uh, Again, thank you so much for creating this resource and all the pioneering work you've done and the hard work you've uh, put oh, in. Thank you. Well, to me, awareness is always the first step in healing. And you reach so many people. I'm deeply grateful for the opportunity to, to share this information with your viewers. And I hope at least part of it's been useful. So God bless you. And thank you again. All right. Well, thanks.